Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. I'm Corey Martin. Today we're talking about production incidents. You know, those scary times that your app doesn't work as you expect. We're bringing these stories out into the open so we can learn from them. In this episode, we'll talk to two developers about production incidents they were personally involved in. First up is Meg Vire, a senior software engineer at Nomadic Learning. Meg, welcome to Codish. Hi. So tell us a little about Nomadic Learning. Yes, so Nomadic is a fully remote company. Um, Our team comes from all around the world, from New York to California to Milan. Um, And our big focus is we build digital academies. So we're trying to help individuals and organizations um, to adapt to different situations through an approach uh, where we use continuous and collaborative learning. Obviously, we are in really uncertain times right now, and a big part of what Nomadic does is help people to adapt to uncertain times. So it has been a very busy year. Um, We've been creating a lot of new content and programs for consumer-based academies, as well as products for the different enterprises that we work with. I imagine as more and more has moved online, you've seen an uptick in usage, and it might increase the pressure you already have to keep everything online and working. Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely seen an uptick, um, not only in, you know, inquiries about new business, but also just in our usership. And like you said, you know, right now things are all digital. So people are really relying on these digital pieces of their learning infrastructure to be online, be operational and um, be available because there isn't really an alternative right now in person. What app are we talking about today? Yeah, so we're talking about the main platform app at Nomadic. So we have um, you know, a small ecosystem that supports the different academies that we have. Um, the app that we're going to talk about is one that powers the main learning platform for our end users. So that's a place where users are able to go to engage with our programs, um, as well as our more sort of bite-sized resource content and all the different interactive and collaborative elements that we have there. And what stack are you using? So for this app, um, our front end is in Vue.js, and on the back end, we're using Python and the Pyramid Framework, and we also use MySQL and SQL Alchemy. And SQL Alchemy is an uh, ORM, or um, Object Relational Mapping. So that's basically just a way to communicate to the database um, in a way that's a little more human readable, I suppose. And what happened? Yeah, so we found that for a certain group of users, um, when they went into the app, they were basically seeing the app empty of any relevant data for them, which is obviously a problem. Um, It was only affecting a group of users for a certain client. So we had our member of the customer success team relay this to our head of technology. Um, And initially, you know, there was a concern that maybe, you know, extensive data had been lost for this group. But eventually we were able to figure out that what had happened was for our user records, users in this certain group 
uh, one field in all of their records had been nullified. And this was a foreign key, which just means um, an ID basically that points from one record and represents a relationship to another record. And there really was nothing that seemed like it could be responsible for this. There were no requests during that time that, from what we could understand, would touch those records in that way and certainly not delete a foreign key. And we hadn't made any deployments uh, within the past few days. And the most recent couple deployments didn't seem like they would be related at all. But clearly this was something we wanted to head off in case it could happen again. So, you know, at the time, nothing stood out to me. Um, I actually like took a break, (laughs) went and had lunch. I was like, I need to step away from this because I don't understand how this could happen. I kind of tried to start from scratch because I'd really been kind of banging my head against the wall a little bit, trying to think how that could happen. So I kind of went back and started with, you know, what my assumptions were and what the facts were. So I knew that all of the foreign keys of a specific value had been nullified. To me, that implied that some code had touched all of the user records in that group. From what we could tell, there wasn't any sort of, you know, external attack or way that, you know, someone outside of the system, either an internal user or some sort of external user had accessed the data. So this was something that was actually happening programmatically. So my question for myself was, you know, what code touches all of these? And so I went back in and I, I kind of reread our recap of what had happened. And I noticed the time would appear that it had happened around 940. And I was starting to think, okay, there's a cron that runs 40 minutes after the hour. Um, ah. Yeah, that I, that <laughs> I had been working. This is a classic case of being both the detective and the culprit. Um, uh-huh. Because this was a, a piece of code that I had touched not super recently, but um, maybe a week before the event had happened. So I went into that piece of code and, you know, when I realized the time and the connection, I thought, okay, I know that this does touch entire groups of users based on their addition. So basically we had made an update where we were sending out these emails and we had to break down the batch size of the emails we were sending um, because the message length started to get too long. So I had a little function that was batching up the users to send the emails to. And within that function, I was using Python's native delete to delete items from a list that was basically, you know, this is my list of users that I want to send this email to. As I sent them off to a batch, I was cutting down the list until the list was empty. Ah, okay. Which is fine. It's fine if it's just a, you know, an in-memory list of um, dictionaries that represent user objects. But it turns out there was a little something more going on. Um, so the ORM that we use, SQL Alchemy, and as I mentioned earlier, that's just something that lets you communicate with the database um, rather than through like raw SQL statements. You can write it in, with SQL Alchemy in a bit more Pythonish way. And that ORM actually alters the native delete keyword um, by putting on I'm assuming some sort of um, like listener or uh, that when you delete something that represents a relationship between records, it actually updates that data in the database without you explicitly 
doing so in the database session. That is a sneaky issue. It was seemed sneaky to me, but in hindsight, there are there are definitely ways that I, I could have avoided this. Let's talk about that then. So I imagine you fixed it within the code then and restored the data that had been altered? Yep. So the actual restoration was pretty trivial because it only deleted um, all instances of one value of that foreign key. So basically we were able to say, Anywhere where this foreign key is nullified, we can just put that value right back in. And then we were able to make that update to the code fairly quickly. Literally, all we had to do was just cast that list, or that instrumented list, uh, into a regular list that doesn't represent the relationships. Got it. So ultimately, a code fix to prevent this from happening again You also mentioned that you learned a few lessons from this that you applied on the team. Would you go into those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. One thing for me that was a big lesson is that, you know, while an ORM can add some convenience, um, in our case, it, it does actually alter some of the native Python data structures and keywords. For me, that led into, you know, a desire to better understand exactly what our ORM was doing. Um, and just because things look simple, you know, to kind of question your assumptions. Another lesson that we learned was that automated tests definitely won't catch everything. We actually sat down as a team and went through all the tests that we reasonably could have written or would have thought to write um, without knowing that this was going to be an issue. And we couldn't really come up with any that would have caught this. Um, really, it would have just required running this code locally and then going into the app and just trying to use it as a user in that group. That was an issue there, um, you know, knowing that maybe we needed to do a little more manual testing and not rely on automated testing. Um, and another big one was making sure that every change that goes out, even one that seems really small, like this seemed like a really small update. We were just going from sending everything at once to sending it in batches of, you know, a few hundred. But that little change actually had a big risk associated with it. So, you know, treating every change as you would perhaps releasing a major feature. And in the last big one for me, and something that I think we're maybe going to try to move to do more as a team, is to actually have some element of a live code review. Uh, we tend to do our code reviews totally asynchronously. But I do think that in this case, you know, if, if we had sat down, um, this code was reviewed. The reviewer definitely knew uh, that that was a potential issue. He has a really deep understanding of how the ORM works. And he'd even gone back and, and looked to make sure that there were simple lists. But this one can, you know, one branch of the conditional had just slipped by. But I think that if we had actually sat down together, uh, even if it was just 10 or 15 minutes, and I had walked through the different branches in this change, I think we would have caught it. What advice would you have for other developers based on this experience? Yeah, so one thing that worked really well for us, um, I've actually recently been trying to read and learn more about DevOps. Um, and so something I've been reading about is blameless postmortems. Um, this isn't something that we formally have been using as a team, but we essentially had a blameless postmortem after this happened. Where basically we just sat down and we're like, what happened? How did this happen? How can we make sure this wouldn't happen again? And like I was saying about kind of going through like tests we could have written, whether or not that would have caught it, all those sorts of discussions um, came up. So 
I think a blameless postmortem is really important. It's easy to want to cast blame. Um, I definitely got myself pretty worked up over this and was just kind of beating myself up for letting something like that slide past. As people, we like to blame, like we just naturally blame as a part of our nature. Um, so I have heard people say, you know, having a blameless postmortem is probably impossible, but having a blame aware postmortem where you make yourself aware of the fact that that's a natural tendency and actively try to work against that because ultimately in a complex system, mistakes do happen and figuring out how to learn from it is really the only way to approach it. Absolutely. So another thing that I learned from this was to make manual testing of new code more of a priority. We thought of all the ways a manual test or an automated test might have caught the issue. It was unlikely that it would have. But if I had done more extensive testing locally, I think it's something that would have revealed itself. And then the big one, I think that's kind of my personal takeaway, is that if there's something in your stack that does things automagically, um, where things are happening behind the scenes and you have very simple syntax that you can interact with and it just happens, make sure you understand how that magic actually does happen. So part of this, I think, is taking time to really understand the philosophy and the sort of overall approach of your tech. That seems like something that's obvious, but for me, I tend to like to jump into things and start working on them right away. You know, like when I came on at Nomadic, I went through the documentation, the original like tutorial and things like that on our ORM before I ever started. And then I got to the job hopped in, started working with it, and never really returned to those sort of fundamental pages in the docs. I would usually go into a problem, look up what I needed to look up to complete the task at hand, and never really went back for more deep dives. Um, That kind of just-in-time learning can be really beneficial um, when you want to just hop in and get things done quickly. But I do think it has major drawbacks if you're not building up a foundation um, where what you don't know can definitely hurt you. Um, So, you know, just in time learning has its place, but you also need to give yourself time and, and encourage, you know, your teammates as well to feel like they have the autonomy to take time to go back and review documentation. Um, Even if you're familiar with working with it, just to continue to grow and deepen your understanding of how it works. You've really highlighted here the dependencies our applications have, the libraries that they use and, Sometimes the unexpected consequences of that and how educating yourself on what your libraries are actually doing and how they work might help avoid issues in the future. I think that's really, really good advice. It's definitely a lesson learned. And, you know, it's a good uh, encouragement to take some time to learn a little more deeply. And I'm hoping that from this, you know, I can take some time to even read and do some writing about not only what happened, but also just helping others understand a little better how tools like SQL Alchemy work. Well, Meg, I've learned a lot. I really appreciate your candor in sharing the story, sharing what happened, how you discovered it, how you fixed it, and the lessons that you took away. Thank you so much for being on Codish. Thanks, Corey. The next incident we'll talk about is very different from Meg's, but some of the lessons are the same. Here's Brendan Hennessy, co-founder and CTO at Launchpad Lab. Brendan, welcome to Codish. 
Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about Launchpad Lab. Sure. We are a uh, web and mobile development studio based out of uh, Chicago, Illinois. We've been in business for about eight years now um, and build custom uh, web and mobile applications uh, for you know, startups to uh, more established businesses looking to kind of roll out um, a new product or a new revenue line is uh, typically where we're uh, jumping to help. And what app are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about an application that we built uh, for a client of ours. Um, they work in the like SAT, ACT prep market, so to speak, and they have an online application to simulate the uh, test taking experience um, for one of those standardized tests. We built the uh, online tool to actually administer and take the test, as well as some backend functionality to you know manage test credits and things like that. And what did you build it in? Typically at Launchpad, we you know leverage a client um, and API structure uh, very frequently. We tend to write our APIs in Rails um, and our, our, our front ends in uh, React. Um, and on the back end, we also leveraged you know, Postgres as our like primary relational data store and did some Redis uh, work for caching and like background queuing. Okay, so what happened? <laughs> <laughs> the applications like heaviest usage tends to come when students are, are taking uh, this diagnostic test. So, you know, we're trying to simulate the real experience as close as possible because we're trying to um, use this as a predictor of what your uh, SAT or ACT score might be. What we'll tend to see in the application is, you know, periods of quiet and then periods of, of heavy activity. And that comes when many students are, are taking the, the diagnostic exam. Um, so we kind of received indirect reports that, you know, the application was slow, students were struggling to, you know, complete their tests, things were, um, you know, timing out, and, you know, the, you know, proctor of the exam and the students taking it just, you know, essentially was like panicking because they're <laughs> in the middle of a test and, and couldn't complete it. And we, you know, we saw this in kind of the uh, narratives that, you know, we heard from users, but, you know, in some of our um, analytics tools, such as Heroku Metrics and New Relics, we're also sort of telling us a, a similar story in a more technical sense, um, but the application wasn't performing well. So this is really high stakes for the test taker, for the proctor, and now for you when you're notified of an issue and you're not sure what's going on. What are the first steps you took to try to figure it out? So, you know, we, we took kind of that uh, narrative feedback and then cross-referenced that with um, some of the new relic, you know, alerts we were seeing. And hearing people say things are unresponsive or slow, um, you know, we're looking for, um, you know, typically on the back end, something that has a high response time or is very, very memory intensive. Those are the things that, you know, would align with, with that kind of story. So, you know, we kind of backed our way into this, so to speak. Um, you know, we we're able to use New Relic's like transaction monitoring tool, um, and you can uh, look at things on the on the web dyno, which would be, you know, what the user is sort of experiencing. There's a background dyno, but you know that's sort of an async process that a user might not really, you know, have an issue with if something's taking a while. So we looked at the web dyno, and you can sort by most time consuming and like highest throughput endpoints. There is one um, called the like update test section endpoint that was being hit very, very frequently, more so than we would have thought. And it was, you know, not as performant or wasn't having a, a quick response time. So you zoomed in on that. Yeah. So we're like, okay, this is kind of makes sense. This is an endpoint that should be hit during the test taking experience, but it's being hit more than we would have thought. And, you know, by being hit under such a load, it's, it's you know, becoming less and less stable and performant. 
um, and, and ultimately having like a user, uh, user impact. Okay, so you know where the problem is. How did you zoom in more and see, okay, why is this endpoint being hit so much and why is it getting slower? Um, yeah, so, you know, we had to, you know, think about the, the user experience and like what the student is going through. So during the test taking experience, um, let's just take like a math test section, for example. A student is given, let's say, 20 questions to complete um, and they have 20 minutes to complete it. In the UI, we want sort of a countdown timer. So the student is sort of aware of their, their pacing um, and how much time they have left to complete those uh, questions. So in addition to sort of showing that real time in the UI with a countdown timer, we also want the ability for them to sort of like pause and, and potentially come back um, to resume that section later. Um, and that required you know, us to persist um, to the, to the back end and, and ultimately Postgres um, in our use case, how much time was left. You know, if we're trying to update that every second, you know, that could be sort of a, a bottleneck on the server to be like persisting that all the time. So we chose, I think, maybe every 10 seconds we would um, persist it, um, to the back end. So, you know, there's a there's an interval timer happening on the UI to uh, update the countdown, but we're not necessarily making an API call. I see. Okay. When we reach that 10 second threshold, what would happen is we were doing a comparison that said anytime the like time elapsed is greater than the threshold, we should make an API call. This kind of works under the assumption that you make that API call and you get a pretty uh, fast response time where it comes back from the server and sort of like resets that 10 second uh, interval. The problem though is that um, that endpoint gets hit very, very frequently by many users and was slow in responding. So what would happen is once it reached or exceeded the threshold, it would make a call, then it would a second later make another call because it hadn't received the response yet, which would then slow down the previous response. Um, and it was kind of a sort of recursive, you know, nightmare, so to speak, where there are these um, API calls that were happening and ultimately sort of resulted in like the user when they went to like save their answers or, um, you know, navigate away, they, they like couldn't persist uh, or it would seemingly sort of lock up on them. They weren't able to like save their, save their results. So if I'm a student, what I don't realize is that my browser is slamming your API more than it should. Mm -hmm. What I do realize is that I can't save my, my, my exam. Um, And that's when I go to you and say, what's going on with the app? Yeah. That's when you get the, your app doesn't work (laughs) from users. Yeah. Okay. So you, you figured out you had sort of a recursive API call issue on every web client accessing your app, or at least most of them, how did you fix it? So, you know, I think there's a couple ways to tackle the problem. So there's the, you know, volume problem, and then there's the response time problem. So, yeah, we could work to sort of optimize the response time of that endpoint that was, you know, maybe taking two or three seconds or something like that. We require decent re-architecting because it was like a shared endpoint that we were using for, for other needs. Um, so, you know, that was a viable option, but would be kind of tedious and might cause this ripple effect of breaking something else, even if you have like automated tests. Um, the other approach would be, okay, how do we just reduce the frequency of API calls? If this is truly like a slower endpoint, why are we hitting it so much? Um, it's a relatively simple change. Um, so on our UI, just instead of, um, you know, once we hit that threshold, 
you know, having a, a greater than comparison, we just did sort of an equal comparison. So, you know, essentially once we hit the threshold, we trigger the one API call. Uh-huh. And then if we continue to count above, you know, it's been 10 seconds, 11, 12, we're not going to make another API call because um, of the, the equality um, comparison. Now, when the API does eventually respond, it kind of resets the you know time elapsed back to zero um, so that then you're counting back up to, to 10 and then that would trigger another API call. All the while, we're still having like the countdown timers and being like reset. This is sort of just an internal like clocking mechanism to throttle, so to speak, the number of API calls we're making. So we got that like update in place, which reduced the volume of requests. And, you know, being able to, you know, um, horizontally scale some of our dynos, we were able to, you know, between those two things, um, handle the load it was under. And then that gave us some more time to like actually optimize the endpoint and, um, you know, make it more performant, which in general is always like a a better move. Um, We knew that would take us a bit longer. And, you know, they sort of talked about earlier, this is sort of a panic stressful situation for the people administering the exam, for the students trying to take it. So, you know, time is of the essence, uh, pun intended, sure. I guess. Um, and, you know, we wanted something to at least like stabilize things and not have it be um, a UX impact, even if like performance wise under the hood, things were still rough. You got it fixed. What uh, <laughs> sort of when you were having a retro looking back at this, what are the biggest lessons you learned? Yeah, so I, you know, I think we had the foresight to have those, you know, monitoring tools installed. So, uh, you know, New Relic as our application monitor, uh, some of the Heroku uh, metrics, having those enabled. So that was very helpful. And I think it's something that, you know, in a retro, we're like, okay, we definitely, that should be sort of a, a standard setup for us. Because otherwise, we would have been, you know, solely relying upon the, um, you know, feedback from users, which, you know, only tells part of the story. Because we weren't receiving 500 errors or like exceptions or something obvious, you know, we weren't getting, you know, notifications and and other uh, like error uh, handling mechanisms. Uh, So that was, I think, like a positive that we we, uh, had that installed. But, you know, I think in reflecting back upon, you know, the regression testing we did and, you know, testing, um, you know, before launch, you know, individual users would would test, you know, basically individual students would be testing it. Um, So, you know, when that endpoint isn't hit as frequently, you don't really feel it. And, you know, hearing how the application was used, in reality, there's tends to be like batches of students that are taking the exam at the same time, not necessarily like one off, you know, you might get sort of an even cadence of students taking the exam, it was like, okay, 15 people in this room are, are going to take it. Um, so you get like heavy load that way. So, you know, understanding that that was going to be a more common um, environment in which the app would be operating, we had to find a way to like simulate that and sort of build that simulation uh, into our like testing and, you know, QA validation process. So just to get things up and running, we did sort of a, a manual like group testing session. As we sort of stumbled upon this, we we affectionately call them testeronies at Launchpad, where we you know <laughs> kind of get get in a room, um, or in, I guess virtual room now maybe, but um, and say okay, well like you know let's have five or six of us um, you know test this application. Yeah, this is a tough one because you don't see it as an individual developer in there, you know, walking through the flow. You need multiple users, so the testeroni makes sense as a tool there to catch that sort of weird error that you only see when you have a bunch of people on it at the same time. 
Yeah, and Tesseroni was our affectionate name to recruit people that weren't on the project to get them intrigued <laughs> by like coming in and, and testing this with us. Uh, Make so. it cute and they'll want to participate. Yeah. yeah, if you got the right branding, they will be they will be on board. <laughs> so in addition, kind of that manual um, approach, we um, looked at leveraging you know more automated tools that could allow us to kind of regression test this. Um, there's a tool we tend to you know have pretty good luck with. It's called Flood.io. Um, and that gives you the ability to, um, you know, simulate um, a user, you know, I guess student in this case, clicking through the, the UI and the test taking experience. Um, and you can sort of run concurrent sessions um, just depending upon your needs. Um, hmm. The tricky thing with that is just having C data that is, you know, separate um, for, you know, multiple concurrent users going through this um, because the data will fundamentally be mutated. You do, if you're running these tests in parallel, they have to sort of be isolated. Um, so you're going to use the same environment because that's how it's going to be in production, but you need to sort of uh, do some extra work on the back end to like prep the, the seed data. It's not just about writing the test script of running through the UI. You also have to have the back end set up with the right test data. So it's a valuable tool for sure, but it comes, you know, with a with a time investment for the development team to sort of have that, you know, script that they can run to say, okay, set up my staging environment with, you know, ten students that have fresh exams, you know, not been touched at all, and then make sure that those, you know, test IDs or you know session IDs that will be you know used for each student are inserted into the test script so that you're uh, sort of simulating that versus they're clicking through a you know, already completed test and you're not getting the same same experience. Wow, lots of good takeaways. I think testaroni is the word <laughs> of the day. Somehow it makes me hungry. I don't know why. Yeah, Maybe I think you're... I think of like pepperoni. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that or pepperoni. That makes sense. I'll have to ask the the product manager on our team um, how he cooked that up. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and the lessons you learned and advice. Uh, really appreciate you uh, being on Codish. All right. Thanks a lot, Corey. Take care. These stories helped me question my assumptions. Maybe automated testing isn't enough, and we need to think about manually testing new features as a team. Maybe our dependencies aren't working quite the way we think they are. This is the value of storytelling. When others share their experiences, we take away lessons for our own projects. Thanks to Brendan and Meg for sharing their incident stories, and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.